2: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 217. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everybody, welcome to this very festive Starship Sofa. I hope you will join me round the fireplace on the old ship and have a fine old time. Well, when I see a festive, you know, I spent $195 on <laughs> that little jingle. Hey, I went daft. No, I do honestly. This will come out, you know, over the Christmas time. So I just hope you just have a fantastic time over Christmas. Our decorations, here on you know, Starship Silver HQ. They've been up for weeks. Honestly, probably around the eleventh of November. Yes, that early. So we've been. I don't even want to go there. Don't even. Don't even go there because that's it's I can't win the argument with my wife. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have We have two bits of fiction this week. Main fictions this week. We have Till Human Voices Take Us by Lewis Shiner. Then we have the fact article, which is the Hugo Review. And it's Andy Thomaswick who is doing Spin this month. Then the next bit of main fiction is Fortitude by none other than David Brin. Can't get better than that. How cool is that? So, straight in with... Till Human Voices Take Us by Lewis Shiner. I'll give you a little heads up with Lewis Shiner. He was one of the early, or you could say the early, writers in that cyberpunk movement. And then later on, he kind of moved over to kind of magical realism, you know, with with little bits of fantasy elements in there as well. He was formerly, as Wikipedia says, a resident of Texas. And he actually took part in that Turkey City Writers Workshop. This is where... You know, the likes of Sterling came up from as well. He now lives in North Carolina. In 2007, and this is, you know, this is just hats off to the guy. He created the Fiction Liberation Front, which is kind of, a, he just puts all his short stories on there free. Do you know what I mean? You can't get better than that. They all come under this Creative Commons license. So what can you say? He's got a new book coming out, or a new book out actually at the moment. Dark Tangos by Subterranean Press. His other novels include Black and White, Say Goodbye, Glimpses, Slam, Deserted Cities. He's had collections of short stories, Nine Hard Questions About the Nature of the Universe, which was the first one, right up to Windows and Orphans. I'll put a link on to Lewis Shiner's site. Please do go over there and go over to his his Fiction Liberation Front as well. I'll put a link under that place as well. So please do pop over there. I'm so pleased to get this story narrated. It is narrated by Ted Delamore. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
3: Till Human Voices Wake Us by Lewis Shiner They were at 40 feet in darkness inside the narrow circle of his dive light "'Campbell could see coral polyps feeding, "'their ragged edges transformed into predatory flowers. "'If anything could have saved us,' he thought, "'this week should have been it.' "'Beth's lantern wobbled as she flailed herself away "'from the white-petaled spines of a sea urchin. "'She wore nothing but a white T-shirt over her bikini, "'despite Campbell's warnings, "'and he could see goose-flesh on her thighs.' WHICH IS AS MUCH OF HER BODY, HE THOUGHT, AS I'VE SEEN IN... HOW LONG? FIVE WEEKS? SIX? HE COULDN'T REMEMBER THE LAST TIME THEY'D MADE LOVE. AS HE MOVED HIS LIGHT AWAY, HE THOUGHT HE SAW A SHAPE IN THE DARKNESS. SHARK, HE THOUGHT, AND FELT HIS THROAT TIGHTEN. HE SWUNG THE LAMP BACK AGAIN. THAT WAS WHEN HE SAW HER. SHE WAS FROZEN BY THE GLARE, LIKE ANY WILD ANIMAL. Her long, straight hair floated up from her shoulders and blended into the darkness. The nipples of her bare breasts were elliptical and purple in the night water. Her legs merged into a green, scaly tail. Campbell listened to his breath rasp into the regulator. He could see the width of her cheekbones, the paleness of her eyes, the frightened tremor of the gills around her neck. Then Reflex took over, and he brought up his Nikonos to fire. The flare of the strobe shocked her to life. She shuddered, flickered her crescent tail toward him, and disappeared. A sudden, inexplicable longing overwhelmed him. He dropped the camera and swam after her, legs pumping, pulling with both arms— As he reached the edge of a hundred-foot drop-off, he swept the light in an arc that picked up a final glimpse of her heading down and to the west. Then she was gone. He found Beth on the surface, shivering and in rage. "'What the hell was the idea of leaving me alone like that? I was scared to death! You heard what that guy said about sharks!' "'I saw something,' Campbell said. "'Fan-fucking-tastic!' She rode low in the water, and Campbell watched her catch a wave in her open mouth. She spat it out and said, "'Were you taking a look, or just running away?' "'Blow up your vest,' Campbell said, feeling numb, desolate, "'before you drown yourself.' He turned his back to her and swam for the boat. Showered, sitting outside his cabin in the moonlight, Campbell began to doubt himself. Beth was already cocooned in a flannel nightgown near her edge of the bed. She would lie there, Campbell knew, sometimes not even bothering to close her eyes until he was asleep. His recurring, obsessive daydreams were what had brought him here to the island. How could he be sure he hadn't hallucinated that creature out on the reef? He told Beth that they'd been lucky to be picked for the vacation, that he'd applied for it months before— In fact, his fantasies had so utterly destroyed his concentration at work that the company had ordered him to come to the island or submit to a complete course of psych-testing. He had been more frightened than he was willing to admit. The fantasies had progressed from the mild violence of smashing his CRT screen to a bizarre, sinister image of himself floating outside his shattered office windows, not falling the forty stories to the street, just drifting there in the whitish smog. High above him, Campbell could see the company bar, glittering like a chrome and steel monster just hatched from its larval stage. He shook his head. Obviously he needed sleep. Just one good night's rest, and things would get back to normal. In the morning, Campbell went out on the dive-boat while Beth slept in. He was distracted, clumsy, bothered by shadows in his peripheral vision. The dive-master wandered over while they were changing tanks and asked him, "'You nervous about something?' "'No,' Campbell said. "'I'm fine. "'There's no sharks on this part of the reef, you know.' "'It's not that,' Campbell said. "'There's no problem, really.' He read the look in the dive-master's eyes. Another case of shell-shock. The company must turn them out by the dozens, Campbell thought. The stressed-out executives and the boardroom victims, all with the same glazed expressions. That afternoon they dove a small wreck at the east end of the island. Beth paired off with another woman, so Campbell stayed with his partner from the morning, a balding pilot from the Cincinnati office. The wreck was no more than a husk, an empty shell, and Campbell floated to one side as the others crawled over the rotting wood. His sense of purpose had disappeared, left him wanting only the weightlessness and lack of color of the deep water. After dinner he followed Beth out onto the patio. He'd lost track of how long he'd been watching the clouds over the dark water when she said, "'I don't like this place.' Campbell looked back at her. She was sleek and pristine in her white linen jacket, the sleeves pushed up to her elbows, her still damp hair twisted into a chignon and spiked with an orchid. She'd been sulking into her brandy since they'd finished dinner, and once again she'd astonished him with her ability to exist in a completely separate mental universe from his own. Why not? "'It's fake. Unreal.' "'This whole island.' She swirled the brandy, but didn't drink any of it. "'What business does an American company have owning an entire island? What happened to the people who used to live here?' "'In the first place,' Campbell said, "'it's a multinational company, not just American. And the people are still living here, only now they've got jobs instead of starving to death. As usual, Beth had him on the defensive.' In fact, he wasn't all that thrilled with the Americanization of the island. He'd imagined natives with guitars and congas, not portable stereos that blasted electronic reggae and neo-funk. The hut where he and Beth slept was some kind of geodesic dome, air-conditioned and comfortable, but he missed the sound of the ocean. "'I just don't like it,' Beth said." I don't like top-secret projects that have to be kept behind electric fences. I don't like the company flying people out here for vacations the way they'd throw a bone to a dog. Or a straw to a drowning man, Campbell thought. He was as curious as anybody about the installations at the west end of the island. But, of course, that wasn't the point." He and Beth were walking through the steps of a dance that Campbell now saw would inevitably end in divorce. Their friends had all been divorced at least once, and an eighteen-year marriage probably seemed as anachronistic to them as a 1957 Chevy. "'Why don't you just admit it,' Campbell said. "'The only thing you really don't like about this island is the fact that you're stuck here with me.' She stood up. And Campbell felt, with numbing jealousy, the stares of men all around them focus on her. "I'll see you later," she said, and heads turned to follow the clatter of her sandals. Campbell ordered another salva vida and watched her walk downhill. The stairs were lit with Japanese lanterns and surrounded by wild purple and orange flowers. By the time she reached the sandbar and the line of cabins, she was no more than a shadow and Campbell had finished most of the beer. Now that she was gone, he felt drained and a little dizzy. He looked at his hands still puckered from the long hours in the water, at the cuts and bruises of three days of physical activity. Soft hands, the hands of a company man, a desk man, hands that would push a pencil or type on a CRT for another twenty years, then retire to the remote control of a big-screen TV. The thick, caramel-tasting beer was starting to catch up to him. He shook his head and got up to find the bathroom. His reflection shimmered and melted in the warped mirror over the bathroom sink. He realized he was stalling, staying away from the chill, sterile air of the cabin as long as he could. And then there were the dreams. They'd gotten worse since he'd come to the island, more vivid and disturbing every night— He couldn't remember details, only slow, erotic sensations along his skin, a sense of floating in thin crystalline water, of rolling in frictionless sheets. He'd awaken from them, gasping for air like a drowning fish, his penis swollen and throbbing. He brought another beer back to his table, not really wanting it, just needing to hold it in his hands. His attention kept wandering to a table on a lower level, where a rather plain young woman sat talking with two men in glasses and dress shirts. He couldn't understand what was so familiar about her, until she tilted her head in a puzzled gesture, and he recognized her. The broad cheekbones, the pale eyes. He could hear the sound of his own heart. Was it just some kind of prank, then? A woman in a costume? "'But what about the gill-lines he'd seen on her neck? "'How in God's name had she moved so quickly?' "'She stood up, made apologetic gestures to her friends. "'Campbell's table was near the stairs, and he saw she would have to pass him on her way out. "'Before he could stop to think about it, he stood up, blocking her exit, and said, "'Excuse me?' "'Yes?' She was not that physically attractive, he thought, but he was drawn to her anyway, in spite of the heaviness of her waist, her solid, shortish legs. Her face was older, more tired than the one he'd seen out on the reef, but similar, too close for coincidence. I wanted to—could I buy you a drink? Maybe, he thought, I'm just losing my mind. She smiled, and her eyes crinkled warmly. I'm sorry— "'It's really very late, and I have to be at work in the morning.' "'Please,' Campbell said, "'just for a minute or two. He could see her suspicion, and behind that a faint glow of flattered ego. She wasn't used to being approached by men, he realized. "'I just want to talk with you.' "'You're not a reporter, are you?' "'No, no, nothing like that.' He searched for something reassuring. "'I'm with the company, the Houston office.' Magic words, Campbell thought. She sat down in Beth's chair and said, I don't know if I should have any more. I'm about half-looped as it is. Campbell nodded and said, You work here, then? That's right. Secretary? Biologist, she said a little sharply. I'm Dr. Kimberly. When he didn't react to the name, she softened it by adding, Joan Kimberly. "'I'm sorry,' Campbell said. "'I always thought biologists were supposed to be homely.' The flirtation came easily. She had the same beauty as a creature on the reef, a sort of fierce shyness and alien sensuality, but in the woman they were more deeply buried. "'My God,' Campbell thought, "'I'm actually doing this, actually trying to seduce this woman.' He glanced at the swelling of her breasts, knowing what they would look like without the blue Oxford shirt she wore, and the knowledge became a warmth in his groin. "'Maybe I'd better have that drink,' she said. Campbell signaled to the waiter. "'I can't imagine what it would be like to live here,' he said, "'to see this every day.' "'You get used to it,' she said. "'I mean, it's still unbearably beautiful sometimes.' "'But you have your work, and your life goes on, you know.' "'Yes,' Campbell said. "'I know exactly what you mean.' She let Campbell walk her home. Her loneliness and vulnerability were like a heavy perfume, so strong it repelled him at the same time that it pulled him irresistibly toward her. She stopped at the doorway of her cabin, another geodesic, This one sat high on the hill, buried in a grove of palms and bougainvilleas. The sexual tension was so strong that Campbell could feel his shirt-front trembling. "'Thank you,' she said, her voice rough. "'You're very easy to talk to.' He could have turned away then, but he couldn't seem to unravel himself. He put his arms around her, and her mouth bumped against his awkwardly, THEN HER LIPS BEGAN TO MOVE, AND HER TONGUE FLICKED OUT EAGERLY. SHE GOT THE DOOR OPEN WITHOUT MOVING AWAY FROM HIM, AND THEY NEARLY FELL INTO THE HOUSE. HE PUSHED HIMSELF UP ON EXTENDED ARMS, AND WATCHED HER MOVING BENEATH HIM. THE MOONLIGHT THROUGH THE TREES WAS GREEN AND WATERY, FALLING IN SLOW WAVES ACROSS THE BED. Her breasts swayed heavily as she arched and twisted her back, the breath bubbling in her throat. Her eyes were clenched tight, and her legs wrapped around his and held them like a long, forked tail. Before dawn he slid out from under her limp right arm and got into his clothes. She was still asleep as he let himself out. He meant to go back to his cabin— but instead he found himself climbing to the top of the island's rocky spine to wait for the sun to come up. He hadn't even showered. Kimberly's perfume and musk clung to his hands and crotch like sexual stigmata. It was Campbell's first infidelity in eighteen years of marriage—a final, irreversible act. He knew most of the jargon, midlife crisis and all that, he'd probably seen Kimberly at the bar some other night and not consciously remembered her, projected her face onto a fantasy with obvious Freudian water-rebirth connotations. In the dim, fractionated light of the sunrise, the lagoon was gray, the line of the barrier reef a darker smudge broken by white caps that curved like scales on the skin of the ocean. Dry palm fronds rustled in the breeze— and the island birds began to chirp and stutter themselves awake. The shadow broke from one of the huts on the beach below and climbed toward the road, weighted down with a large suitcase and a flight bag. Above her, in the asphalt lot at the top of the stairs, a taxi coasted silently to a stop and doused its lights. If he had run he could have reached her, and maybe could even have stopped her— but the hazy impulse never became strong enough to reach his legs. Instead he sat until the sun was hot on his neck and his eyes were dazzled into blindness by the white sand and water. On the north side of the island facing the mainland, the village of Espejo sprawled in the mud for the use of the resort and the company. A dirt track ran down the middle of it, oily water standing in the ruts. The cinder-block houses on concrete piers and the fords rusting in the yards reminded Campbell of an American suburb in the fifties, warped by nightmare. The locals who worked in the company's kitchens and swept the company's floors lived here, and their kids scuffled in alleys that smelled of rotting fish, or lay in the shade and threw rocks at three-legged dogs. An old woman sold St. Francis flower sack shirts from ropes tied between pilings of her house. Under an awning of corrugated green plastic, bananas lay in heaps, and flies swarmed over haunches of beef. At the end of the main street was a farmacia, with a faded yellow Kodak sign that promised one day service. Campbell blinked and found his way to the back, where a ten-year-old boy was reading La Novella Poliziaca. The boy set the comic on the counter and said, "'Yes, sir. How soon can you develop these?' Campbell shoved the cartridge toward him. "'Monday?' Campbell gripped the edge of the counter. "'Ready to-day?' he asked slowly. "'Tomorrow, this time.' Campbell took a twenty out of his wallet and held it face down on the scarred wood. "'This afternoon?' "'Momentito.' The boy tapped something out on a computer terminal at his right hand. The dry clatter of the keys filled Campbell with distaste. "'Tonight, okay?' the boy said. "'A la cesse.' He touched the dial of his watch and said, "'Seeks.' "'All right,' Campbell said. For another five dollars he bought a pint of Canadian Club, and then he went back onto the street. He felt like a sheet of weakly-colored glass, as if the sun shone clear through him.' He was a fool, of course, to be taking this kind of chance with the film, but he needed that picture. He had to know. He anchored the boat as close as possible to where it had been the night before. He had two fresh tanks and about half the bottle of whiskey left. It was barely noon, the sun a white ball of fire in the sky. Diving drunk and alone was against every rule anyone had ever tried to teach him— But the idea of a simple, clean death by drowning seemed ludicrous to Campbell, not even worth consideration. Fate obviously had something more convoluted in mind for him. His diving jeans and sweatshirt, still damp and salty from the night before, were suffocating him. He got into his tank as quickly as he could and rolled over the side. The cool water revived him, washed him clean. He purged the air from his vest and dropped straight to the bottom. Dulled by whiskey and lack of sleep, he floundered for a moment in the sand before he could get his buoyancy neutral. At the edge of the drop-off he hesitated, then swam to his right, following the edge of the cliff. His physical condition made him burn air faster than he wanted to, Going deeper would only make it worse. The bright red of a Coke can winked at him from a coral head. He crushed it and stuck it in his belt, suddenly furious with the company and its casual rape of the island, with himself for letting them manipulate him, with Beth for leaving him, with the entire world and the human race— He kicked hard, driving himself through swarms of Jack and Blue Tang, hardly noticing the twisted, brilliantly colored landscape that moved beneath him. Some of the drunkenness burned off in his first burst of energy, and he gradually slowed, wondering what he possibly could hope to accomplish. It was useless, he thought. He was chasing a phantom, but he didn't turn back. He was still swimming when he hit the net." It was nearly invisible, a web of monofilament in one-foot squares, strong enough to hold a shark or a school of porpoises. He tested it with the serrated edge of his diver's knife, with no luck. He was close to the west end of the island, where the company kept their research facility. The net followed the line of the reef as far down as he could see, and extended out into the open water. She was real, he thought. They built this to keep her in but how did she get past it? When he'd last seen her, she'd been heading down. Campbell checked his sea-view gauge, saw that he had less than five hundred pounds of air left, enough to take him down to a hundred feet or so and right back up. The sensible thing to do was to return to the boat and bring a fresh tank back with him. He went down anyway." He could see the fine wires glinting as he swam past them. They seemed bonded to the coral itself by some process he could not even imagine. He kept his eyes moving between the depth gauge and the edge of the net. Much deeper than a hundred feet, and he would have to worry about decompression as well as an empty tank. At one hundred feet he tripped his reserve lever, three hundred pounds and counting— All the reds had disappeared from the coral, leaving only blues and purples. The water was noticeably darker, colder, and each breath seemed to roar into his lungs like a geyser. Ten more feet, he told himself, and at a hundred and twenty-five he saw the rip in the net. He snagged his backpack on the monofilament and had to back off and try again, fighting panic. He could already feel the constriction in his lungs again, as if he were trying to breathe with a sheet of plastic over his mouth. He'd seen tanks that had been sucked so dry that the sides caved in. They found them on divers trapped in rock slides and tangled in fishing line. His tank slipped free, and he was through, following his bubbles upward." The tiny knot of air in his lungs expanded as the pressure around him let up, but not enough to kill his need to breathe. He pulled the last of the air out of the tank and forced himself to keep exhaling, forcing the nitrogen out of his tissues. At fifty feet he slowed and angled toward a wall of coral, turned the corner, and swam into a sheltered lagoon. For a few endless seconds he forgot that he had no air. The entire floor of the lagoon was laid out in squares of greenery, kelp, mosses, and something that looked like giant cabbage. A school of red snappers circled past him, herded by a metal box with a blinking light on the end of one long antenna. Submarines with spindly mechanical arms worked on the ocean floor, thinning the vegetation and darkening the water with chemicals. Two or three dolphins were swimming side by side with human divers, and they seemed to be talking to each other. His lungs straining, Campbell turned his back on them and kicked for the surface, trying to stay as close to the rocks as he could. He wanted to stop for a minute at ten feet to give at least a nod to decompression, but it wasn't possible. His air was gone. He broke the surface less than a hundred feet from a concrete dock. Behind him was a row of marker buoys that traced the line of the net all the way out to sea and around the far side of the lagoon. The dock lay deserted and steaming in the sun. Without a fresh tank, Campbell had no chance of getting out the way he'd come in. If he swam out on the surface, he'd be as conspicuous as a drowning man. He had to find another tank or another way out. Hiding his gear under a sheet of plastic, he crossed the hot concrete slab to the building behind it, a wide, low warehouse full of wooden crates. A rack of diving gear was built into the left-hand wall. Campbell was starting for it when he heard a voice behind him. "'Hey, you! Hold it!' Campbell ducked behind a wall of crates, saw a tiled hallway opening into the back of a building, and ran for it. He didn't get more than three or four steps before a uniformed guard stepped out and pointed a thirty eight at his chest. "'You can leave him with me. Are you sure, Dr. Kimberly?' "'I'll be all right,' she said. "'I'll call you if there's any trouble.' Campbell collapsed in a plastic chair across from her desk. The office was strictly functional, waterproof and mildew-resistant. A long window behind Kimberly's head showed the lagoon and the row of marker buoys. "'How much did you see?' she asked. "'I don't know. I saw what looked like farms, some machinery.' She slid a photograph across the desk to him. It showed a creature with a woman's breasts and the tail of a fish. The face was close enough to Kimberly's to be her sister, or her clone's. Campbell suddenly realized the amount of trouble he was in. "'The boy at the pharmacia works for us,' Kimberly said. Campbell nodded. Of course he did. Where else would he get a computer? "'You can have the picture,' Campbell said, blinking the sweat out of his eyes. "'And the negative.' "'Let's be realistic,' she said, tapping the keys of her CRT and studying the screen. "'Even if we let you keep your job—' "'I don't see how we could hold your marriage together. "'And then you have two kids to put through college,' she shook her head. "'Your brain is full of hot information. "'There are too many people who would pay to have it, "'and there are just too many ways you can be manipulated. "'You're not much of a risk, Mr. Campbell.' "'She radiated hurt and betrayal, "'and he wanted to slink away from her in shame.' "'She got up and looked out the window. "'We're building the future here,' she said. "'A future we couldn't even imagine fifteen years ago. "'And that's just too valuable to let one person screw up. "'Plentiful food, cheap energy, access to a computer net for the price of a TV set, "'a whole new form of government. "'I've seen your future,' Campbell said." "'Your boats have killed the reef for over a mile around the hotel. "'Your Coke cans are lying all over the coral bed. "'Your marriages don't last and your kids are on drugs "'and your TV is garbage. "'I'll pass. "'Did you see that boy in the drugstore? "'He's learning calculus on that computer "'and his parents can't even read and write. "'We're testing a vaccine on human subjects. "'That will probably prevent leukemia.' We've got laser surgery and transplant techniques that are revolutionary. Literally. Is that where she came from? Campbell asked, pointing to the photograph. Kimberly's voice dropped. It's synergistic, don't you see? To do the transplants, we had to be able to clone cells from the donor. To clone cells, we had to have laser manipulation of the genes... They cloned your cells just for practice? She nodded slowly. Something happened. Hiring for your small business? If you're not
0: looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
3: Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
1: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
3: She grew, but she stopped developing. Kept her embryonic form from the waist down. There was nothing we could do except... Make the best of it. Campbell took a longer look at the picture. No, not the romantic myth he had first imagined. The tail was waxy-looking in the harsh light of the strobe, the fins more clearly undeveloped legs. He stared at the photo in queasy fascination. You could have let her die. No, she was mine. I don't have much, and I wouldn't give her up. "'Kimberly's fists clenched at her sides. "'She's not unhappy. "'She knows who I am. "'In her own way, I suppose she cares for me.' "'She paused, looking at the floor. "'I'm a lonely woman, Campbell. "'But of course you know that.' "'Campbell's throat was dry. "'What about me?' he rasped and managed to swallow. "'Am I going to die?' "'No,' she said. "'Not you either.' Campbell swam for the fence. His memories were cloudy and he had trouble focusing his thoughts, but he could visualize the gap in the net and the open ocean beyond it. He kicked down easily to a hundred and twenty feet, the water cool and comforting on his naked skin. Then he was through, drifting gently away from the noise and stink of the island, toward some primal vision of peace and timelessness his gills rippled smoothly as he swam Till Human Voices Wake Us written by Lewis Shiner, read by Ted Delorme Copyright nineteen eighty four by Mercury Press Incorporated first published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, may nineteen eighty four.
2: There you go. Don't forget, pop over to Fiction Liberation Front there. All Lewis's work is on that site, but it comes under Creative Commons, so please abide by their rules. Lewis, thank you so much for this. Next up is Andy Thomaswick with his Hugo Review.
1: This time we're dipping into Spin. Andy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the Hugo Review. This time I'll be covering Spin by Robert Charles Wilson. Everyone falls, and we all land somewhere. That is a quote from Spin that has been up on my Facebook wall since I created my profile in 2006. It is joined there by the likes of Churchill, Sagan, and Frost. That's how highly I hold the central idea of this book. Spin manages to spin together, no pun intended, a case study in human sociology, several ingenious scientific ideas, and one of the best endings I've ever read in a book, ever. The story itself is told in a flashback fashion, but the technique is used both sparingly and expertly. Wilson structures the story to drive the main characters so far apart that you begin to question whether he'll be able to effectively resolve their differences to get them to where they are at the beginning of the book. The chronologically correct path of the book starts with the night the stars went out. As I am myself a huge astronomy fan, I did not think this was a very auspicious beginning. Generally, I read science fiction because it allows me to dream about what is possible in the stars, not so that they can be erased in the sky in the first ten pages. But Wilson proves me wrong. The stars go out because a membrane was placed around the Earth that doesn't allow starlight through. A replacement sun on the inside of the membrane gives a somewhat reassuring continuity despite all the changes, and for a while everyone goes about their normal business on Earth. That is, until someone gets the bright idea to launch a satellite, and realizes that the outside world is progressing 100 million times faster than inside the membrane, and an expanding sun will end all life on the planet within the lifetimes of the people already alive. The real beauty of the book is how people deal with this revelation. Everybody falls, and we all land somewhere. How would you deal with the realization that not only do you have a deadline for how long you'll be alive, but every one of your entire species has that same deadline. There are three main characters that represent the three primary ways people deal with such a situation. All three grew up together and shared that first fateful night together. Jason embodies a scientific way of thinking about life. He dives headlong into trying to understand what the membrane is and the reasons behind its existence. He does this to the exclusion of every other consideration in life to a point that another reviewer thought he might actually have Asperger's syndrome. Diane, his twin sister, takes the complete opposite path. She joins an apocalyptic Christian cult who believes the membrane is part of God's plan for the end times. Tyler, the protagonist and first-person storyteller, takes the middle ground. He becomes a doctor and what I like to call an ostrich. He buries his head in the ground and pretends that he won't be able to change anything about his existential situation. Best just to go on with life as usual. At heart, this book disproves that theory, and that's part of the reason why I love it. Despite having his life choice disproven, Tyler offers the ideal storyteller. He becomes Jason's body as the scientist slowly succumbs to multiple sclerosis, and he becomes Diane's heart as they slowly fall into a long unrequited love. But he is still detached enough to take notes of the pros and cons of how each of his friends deals with the end of the world. A series of epiphanies and dramatic events that I have yet to see matched in any other Hugo Award winner so far helps to unravel the mysteries laid out via the flashback structure. I won't go into the details of the revelations, as I don't want to spoil the story, but saying that two of my favorite topics ever explored in science fiction are touched on as central parts of that story isn't ruining anything. It just helped me enjoy the book that much more. I can also give it some of the highest praise I have for a book yet, I was not disappointed by any of the epiphanies and was especially thrilled with the ending. This is science fiction storytelling at its best. And I'm not the only one who enjoyed it. Almost all professional reviewers had nothing but good things to say. In fact, I agree strongly with something the reviewer at sfreviews.net said, I can find nothing wrong with this book. It is excellently written, with unique and genius ideas, brilliantly developed, in-depth characters, and a writing style that is descriptive and paced superbly. I cannot recommend this one highly enough. In fact, it's in the running for my favorite Hugo Award winner so far. It didn't hurt that it was also the first one I read during the course of this project. It's always a pleasant surprise to start off on a good note, and I'm just going to hope that there's another one out there that can outmatch this. But I'm guessing you've had enough of my enthusiasm for one day, so I'll wrap up this edition of the Hugo Review. Next time I'll be covering Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell* by Susanna Clarke, another great book but in a completely different genre. Now get out there and make sure not to get dizzy from spinning.
2: Andy, sir. Now we might have a, some new work coming. We've got to wait and see, though. There might be some new things happening with Andy as well. We will wait and see. Andy, thank you for... Coming on this year with Starships Over with your Hugo reviews. People just love them, thank you so much. Next up is, fantastic, Mr. David Brain with a story called Fortitude. In 2012, David's got a new book coming out, Existence, and he's got this great idea. He's wanting anybody out there, you know, who's got the kind of, the knack to make a video for this, this book, you know. And if you, if you kind of remember, remember he, Jeff Carlson's Plague Year, when he did that video where it was up in the snow and everything like that. David wants something like that, you know, so it's a competition. So if you're up for that, you know, pop over. I'll put a link on his site so you can come over to have a look and have a read about what he's after there. But I think that's a great idea. Do you know what I mean? It's just people out there now have got so many skills, you know, on the internet, on the web, you know, all this kind of technology is at our hands. So you could, you know, be doing a video for David Brin there, please. That would be fantastic. So I'll put a link on. This story is narrated by Netherland Josh Roseman. Josh has been a great friend of Starship Sub as well. we have doing some amazing narrations and, you know, if you remember... His fiction's just kicking off big time as well, getting picked up by Sheila Williams over there at Azimov's. I'll give you a little bio of Josh's. Josh Roseman, not the trombonist, the other one. There must be some trombonist over there in the States. <laughs> That's got Josh's name as well. Josh, you're the main one, sir. He has stories forthcoming in Asimov's. Ophie's Kiss, and he has the Fat Girl in a Strange Land anthology. He must have a story in that. Strange title there. The fiction, his fiction has previously appeared in Asimov's, The June Steve and Fusion Fragment. And he's, as you know, voice has been heard on Starships so over He's also been on Pseudopod and Escape Pod. Find him at, at joshrosman.com or Twitter, listener42. There you go, Josh. Big Merry Christmas to you, sir. You've been kind to starships Starship Sova. Very kind, shall I say. And just, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
0: Fortitude by David Brin. The aliens seemed especially concerned over matters of genealogy. "'It is the only way we can be sure with whom we are dealing,' said the spokes-being for the Galactic Federation. Terran Esperanto words emerged through a translator device affixed to the creature's speaking vent between purple compound eyes. "'Citizen species of the Federation will have nothing to do with you humans, not until you can be properly introduced.' ''But you're spaking to us right now!'' Jane Fingal protested. ''You're making booger all sense, mate!'' Jane was our astronomer aboard the Straits of Magellan. She had first spotted the wake of the Nagorm ship as it raced by, far swifter than any Earth vessel, and it had been Jane's idea to pulse our engines, giving off weak gravity waves to attract their attention. Then, for several days, she labored to help solve the language problem until a meeting could be arranged between our puny ETS survey probe and the mighty Nagorum craft. Still, I was surprised when Quenzi Mobutu, our Zairean anthropologist, did not object to Jane's presence in the docking bubble, along with the official contact team. Quenzy seldom missed a chance to play up tension between Earth's two greatest powers, Royal Africa and the Australian Imperium, even during this historic first encounter with a majestic alien civilization. The alien slurped mucousy sounds into its mouthpiece, and out came more computer-generated words. You misunderstand. I am merely a convenience, a construct entity, fashioned to be as much like you as possible, and thereby facilitate your evaluation. I have no name, and will return to the vats when done. Fashioned to be like us? I must have stared. Everyone else did. The being in front of us was bipedal, and had two arms. On top were objects and organs we had tentatively named ears and a mouth. Beyond that he, she— it seemed about as alien as could be. Yipes, Jane commented. I'd hate to meet your boss in a dark alley if you're the handsomest bloke they could come up with. I saw Mobutu, the African aristocrat, smile. That's when I realized. He knows this meeting is being recorded for posterity. If she makes a fool of herself here, at the most solemn meeting of races, it could win points against the Australians back home. As I have tried to explain the alien reiterated. You will not meet my boss or any other citizen entity, not until we are satisfied that your lineage is worthy. While our Israeli and Tahitian xenobiologists conferred over this surprising development, our Patagonian captain stared out through the docking bubble at the Federation ship whose great flanks arched away gleaming in all directions. Clearly, he yearned to bring these advanced technologies home to the famed shipyards of Tierra del Fuego. Perhaps I can be helpful in this matter, Quenzi Mobutu offered confidently. I have some small expertise. When it comes to tracking one's family tree, I doubt any other human aboard can match my own genealogy. His smile was a gleaming white contrast against gorgeously perfect black skin, the sort of rich complexion that trendy people from pole to pole had been using chemicals to emulate when we left home. Even before the golden placards of Abidjan were discovered, my family line could be traced back to the great medieval households of Ghana. But since the recovery of those sacred records, it has been absolutely verified that my lineage goes all the way to the black pharaohs of the 20th dynasty, an unbroken chain of 4,000 years. Mabutu's satisfaction faded when the alien replied with a dismissive wave. That interval is far too brief, nor are we interested in the time-thread of mere individuals. Larger groups concern us. Jane Fingal chuckled, and Mobutu whirled on her angrily. Your attitude suits a mongrel nation whose ancestors were criminal transportees and whose emperor is chosen at a rugby match. Oi, our king'd whip y'alls any day, even half-drunken with his arse in a sling. Colleagues, I hastened to interrupt, these are serious matters. A little decorum, if you please. The two shared another moment's hot enmity until Nehemiah Myers spoke up. Perhaps they refer to cultural continuity. If we can demonstrate that one of our social traditions has a long history, stretching back 5,000 years, inserted Mohandas Nayal, our linguist from Delhi Commune, of course the Hindu tradition, as carried by the Vedas, goes back easily that far. Actually... Myers continued, a bit miffed. I was thinking more along the lines of six thousand, he cut short, as the alien let out a warbling sigh, waving both hands. Once again, you misconstrue. The genealogy we seek is genetic, but a few thousand of your years is wholly inadequate. Jane muttered, Bugger, it's like dickering with a patty over the prize for bleedin' iceberg. No offense, skipper. The captain returned a soft smile. "'Patagonians are an easy-going lot till you get down to business.' "'Well then,' Mobutu resumed, nodding happily, "'I think we can satisfy our alien friends and win Federation membership on a purely biochemical basis. "'For many years now, the Great Temple in Abidjan has gathered DNA samples from every sub-race on Earth, "'correlating and sorting to trace out our genetic relationships. "'Naturally, African bloodlines were found to be the least mutated from the central line of inheritance.' Jane groaned again, but this time Quincy ignored her. Stretching back to our fundamental common ancestor, that beautiful dark ancestress of all human beings, the one variously called Eva or Matum, who dwelled on the eastern fringes of what is now the Zairean Duchy, over three million years ago. So impressive was Mobutu's dramatic delivery that even the least sanguine of our crew felt stirred, fascinated, and somewhat awed but then the Nagorum servant entity vented another of its frustrated sighs. "'I perceive that I am failing in my mission to communicate with lesser beings. Allow me to try again.' We in the Federation are constantly being plagued by young, upstart species, rising out of planetary nurseries and immediately yammering for attention, claiming rights of citizenship in our ancient culture. At times, it has been suggested that we should routinely sterilize such places, filthy little worlds, or at least eliminate noisy, adolescent infestations by targeting their early stages with radio-seeking drones. But the Kutathi, who serve as judges and law arbiters in the Federation, have ruled this impermissible. There are few crimes worse than meddling in the natural progress of a nursery world. All we can do is snub the newcomers and restrict them to their home systems until they have matured enough for decent company.' "'That's all?' The captain spoke for the first time, aghast at what this meant, an end to the Earth's bold ventures with interstellar travel. Crude our ships might be, by galactic standards, but humanity was proud of them. They were a unifying force, binding fractious nations and a common cause. It was awful to imagine that our expedition might be the last. The translator apparently failed to convey the captain's sarcasm. The alien envoy entity nodded in solemn agreement. Yes, that is all, so you may rejoice in your own pathetic way that your world is safe for you to use up or destroy any way you see fit, since that is the typical way most puerile species finish their brief lifespans. If by some chance you escape this fate, you will eventually be allowed to send forth your best and brightest to serve in carefully chosen roles, earning eventual acceptance on the lowest rungs of proper society. Jane Fingal growled, "Why oh, you puffed-up pack of pseudo-pommy bastard!" I cut in with urgent speed. "Excuse me, but there is one thing I fail to understand. You spoke earlier of an evaluation. Does this mean that our fate is not automatic?" The alien emissary regarded me for a long time, as if pondering whether I deserved an answer. Finally, it must have decided I was not that much lower than my crewmates. Anyway, it acknowledged my query with a nod. There is an exception if you can prove a relationship with a citizen race. To determine that possibility was the purpose of my query about species lineage. Ah, now it becomes clear, Mohandas Nayal said. You want to know if we are genetically related to one of your highborn castes." Does this imply that those legends may be true that star beings have descended from time to time to engage in sexual congress with our ancestors? By commingling their seed with ours, they meant to generously endow and improve our... He trailed off, as we all saw the Nagorm quiver. Somehow, disgust was conveyed quite efficiently across his expressive face. "'Please do not be repulsive in your bizarre fantasies. The behavior you describe is beyond contemplation, even by the mentally ill. Not only is it physically and biologically absurd, but it assumes the high-born might wish to improve the stock of bestial nuisances. Why in the universe would they want to do such a thing?' Ignoring the bald insult, Myers, the exobiologist, added, "'It's unlikely for another reason. Human DNA has been probed and analyzed for three centuries. We have a pretty good idea of where most of it came from. We're creatures of the Earth. No doubt about it.' When he saw members of the contact team glaring at him, Myers shrugged. "'Oh, it would all come out in time anyway. Don't you think they'd analyze any claim we made?' "'Correct,' buzzed the translator. "'And we would bill you for the effort.' "'Well, I'm still confused,' claimed our Uzbeki memeticist. "'You make it sound as if there is no way we could be related to one of your citizen races, "'so why this grilling about our genealogy?' "'A formality required by law. "'In times past, a few exceptional cases won status "'by showing that they possessed common genes with highborn ones.' "'And how did these commonalities come about?' Mobutu asked, "'still miffed over the rejection of his earlier claims.' The Nagorm whistled another sigh. Not all individuals of every species behave circumspectly. Some of noble birth have been known to go down to planets seeking thrills or testing their mettle to endure filth and heavy gravity. In other words, they go slummin'. Jane Fingal laughed. Now those are the only blokes I'd care to meet in your whole damn Federation. I caught Jane's eye, gesturing for restraint. She needn't make things worse than they already were. The whole of Earth would watch recordings of what passed here today. Nehemiah Myers shook his head. I can see where all this is leading. When galactics go slumming, as Jane colorfully put it, they risk unleashing alien genes into the ecosystem of a nursery world. This is forbidden interference in the natural development of such planets. It also makes possible a genetic link that could prove embarrassing later, when that world spawns a star-traveling race. The translator buzzed gratification. At last I have succeeded in conveying the basic generalities. Now before we take your ship in tow and begin the quarantine of your wretched home system, I am required by law to offer you a chance. Do you wish formally to claim such a genetic link to one of our citizen races? Remember that we will investigate in detail at your expense. A pall seemed to settle over the assembled humans. This was not as horrible as some of the worst literary fantasies about alien contact, but it was pretty bad. Apparently, the galaxy was ruled by an aristocracy of age and precedence, one that jealously guarded its status behind a veneer of hypocritical law. How can we know whether or not to make such a claim? Kwenzi Mabutu protested, "Unless we meet your high castes for ourselves, that will not happen. Not unless your claim is upheld." But. hardly matters, inserted Nehemiah glumly. We turned and the captain asked, What do you mean? I mean that we cannot make such a claim. The evidence refutes it. All we need is to look at the history of life on Earth. Consider, friends, why did we think for so long that we were alone in the cosmos? It wasn't just that our radio searches for intelligent life turned up nothing decade after decade. Aliens could have efficient technologies that make them abandon radio. The way we gave up signal drums. This is exactly what we found to be the case. No. A much stronger argument for our uniqueness lay in the sedimentary rocks of our own world. If intelligent life was plentiful, someone would invent starships and travel. Simple calculations showed that just one such outbreak, if it flourished, could fill the galaxy with its descendants in less than 50 million years. And that assumed ship technology far cruder than this Nagorm dreadnought hovering nearby. He gestured at the sleek, gleaming hull outside that had accelerated so nimbly in response to Jane Fingal's hail. Imagine such a life swarm sweeping across the galaxy, settling every habitable world in sight. It's what we humans thought we'd do once we escaped Earth's bonds, according to most science fiction tales. A prairie fire of colonization that radically changes every world it touches, forever mixing and reshuffling each planet's genetic heritage. The emissary conceded. "'It is illegal, but it has happened from time to time,' Myers nodded. "'Maybe it occurred elsewhere, but not on Earth.' "'How can you be sure?' I asked. Because we can read Earth's biography in her rocks. For more than two billion years, our world was prime real estate, as one great 20th century writer once put it. It had oceans and a decent atmosphere, but no living residents higher than crude prokaryotes, bacteria and algae, simmering in the sea. In all that time, until the eukaryotic explosion half a billion years ago, any alien interference would have profoundly changed the course of life on our world. Jane Fingal edged forward. This explosion, you spoke of. What was that? The eukaryotic explosion, Myers explained occurred about 560 million years ago. Eukaryotes existed well before then, evolved nucleated cells crammed with sophisticated organelles, but that's when they suddenly took off in organized clusters. Soon after, with incredible speed, there arose multi-celled organisms, invertebrates, vertebrates, fishes, dinosaurs, and primates. But the important datum is the 2 billion years before that, when even the most careful of colonizations would have utterly changed Earth's ecology by infecting it with advanced alien organisms we would later see in sediments. Even visitors who flushed their toilets carelessly. Myers trailed off as our astronomer made choking sounds, covering her mouth. Finally, Jane burst out with deep guffaws, laughing so hard that she nearly doubled over. We waited until finally Jane wiped her eyes and explained, Sorry, mates, it's just that, well, something hit me when Nehemiah mentioned Helialtus. I checked my memory files and recalled the euphemism, popular in Australian English. Every Aussie home is said to contain at least one porcelain altar, where adults who have overindulged with food or drink often kneel and pray for relief, invoking the beer deities, Ralph or Ruth. On weekdays, these altars have other, more mundane uses. Kwenzi Mobutu seemed torn between outrage over Jane's behavior and delight that it was all being recorded. And what insight did this offer you? he asked with a tightly controlled voice. "'Oh, with your interest in genealogy, you'll love this, Coenzi,' Jane assured in a friendly tone. She turned to Nehemiah. "'You say there couldn't have been any alien interference before the eukaryotic explosion, and after that everything on Earth seems to be part of the same tree of life, right? Neither of these long periods seems to show any trace of outside interference.' The Israeli nodded, and Jane smiled. "'But what about the explosion itself?' Isn't that just the sort of sudden event you'd say would be visible in rocks if alien garbage ever got dumped on Earth? Myers frowned, nodding his brow. Well... Yes. Offhand, I cannot think of any perfect refutation, providing you start out assuming a general similarity in amino and nucleic acid coding and compatible protein structures. That's not too far fetched. From that point on, prokaryotic and early eukaryotic genes mixed. But the super eukaryote seed stock might have come quite suddenly. A short squeal escaped the alien emissary. This is true. Your life history manifested such a sudden transformation on so basic a level, from unnucleated to fully competent multicellular organisms. How rapid was this change? Myers shook his head. No one has been able to parse the boundary thinly enough to tell, but clearly it was on the order of a million years or less. Some hypothesize a chain of fluke mutations levering on each other rapidly, but that explanation did always seem a bit too pat. There are just too many sudden revolutionary traits to explain. He looked up at Jane with a new light in his eyes. You aren't joking about this, are you? I mean, we could be onto something. I wonder why this never occurred to us before. The captain uttered a short laugh. Trust an Australian to think of it. They don't give a damn what you think about their ancestors. A flurry of motion drew our eyes to the tunnel leading to the Nagorm ship, just in time to catch sight of the envoy entity, fleeing our presence in a state of clear panic. A seal hissed shut, and vibrations warned that the huge vessel was about to detach. We made our own prudent exit, hurrying back to our ship. Last to reboard was Koenzi Mobutu, wearing a bleak look on his face, paler than I had ever seen him. The African aristocrat winced as Jane Fingal offered a heartfelt Australian prayer of benediction aimed at the retreating Nagorm frigate. My Ruth follow you everywhere, mate, and keep you busy at her altar. Jane laughed again and finished with a slurpy, flushing sound. Many years have passed since that epiphany on the space lanes. Of all the humans present when we held the fateful meeting, only I, the one made of durable silicon and brass, still live to tell an eyewitness tale by the laws of earth i am equal to any biological human being despite galactic rules that would let me be enslaved no noble genes lurk in my cells no remnants of ruffians who went slumming long ago on a planet whose only life forms merged in scummy mats at the fringes of a tepid sea I carry no DNA from those alien rapscallions, those highborn ones who carelessly gave Earth an outlawed gift, a helpful push, but my kind was designed by the heirs of that little indiscretion, so I can share the poignant satisfaction brought by recent events. For decade after decade, ever since that fateful meeting between the stars, we have chased Federation ships who always fled like scoundrels evading a subpoena. Sometimes our explorers would arrive at one of their habitat clusters only to find vast empty cities, abandoned in frantic haste to avoid meeting us, or to prevent our emissaries from uttering one terrible word, Cousin. It did them no good in the long run. Eventually we made contact with the august, honest Kutathi, the judges who admitted our petition before them, the galactic equivalent of a cosmobiological paternity suit. And now, the ruling has come down at last, leaving Earth's accountants to scratch their heads in awe over the damages we have been awarded and the official status we have won. As for our unofficial social position, that is another matter. Our having the right to vote in high councils will not keep most of the haughty aliens from snubbing Earthlings for a long time to come. Would we behave any better if a strain of our intestinal flora suddenly began demanding a place at the banquet table? I hope so. But you can never tell until you face the situation for yourself. None of that matters as much as the freedom to come and go as we please, to buy and sell technologies, to learn, and eventually to teach. The Katathi judges kindly told our emissaries that humans seem to have a knack, a talent, for the law. Perhaps it will be our calling, the katathi said, given the jokes people have long told about the genetic nature of lawyers. Well, so be it. Among humans of all races and nations there is agreement, there is common cause, something has to change, the snooty ways of high-born clans must give way, and we are just the ones to help make it happen. We'll find other loopholes in this rigid, inane class system, other ways to help spring more young races out of quarantine, until at last the stodgy old order crumbles. Anyway. Who cares what aristocrats think of us, their illegitimate cousins, the long-fermented fruit of their bowels? Jane Fingal wrote our anthem long ago. It is a stirring song, hauntingly kindred to waltzing Matilda, full of verve, gumption, and the spirit of rebellion. Like the 1812 overture, it can't properly be played without an added instrument. Only in this case, the guest soloist plays no canon, but a porcelain altar— one that swishes, churns, and gurgles with the soulful strains of destiny.
2: And there you go. That is Starship Swooper. Don't forget, copyright is David Brins. Please pop over there and see David's site and if you fancy taking part in his little video experiment, that would be amazing. And if it is, you know, let me know and we'll plug it again as well. It be nice to see how that project takes off. Well, I just want to wish... Everyone who's kind of been on Starship so far, you know, who's helped through the, you know, the year, thank you so much. Just want to wish you and all listeners, you know, out there, everyone that's kind of dropped us an email, just listens and and never, you know, gets in touch. Just appreciate. I do appreciate it so much. Thank you, you know, one and all. Just a big Merry Christmas there. And next week there will be no, well, there will be a show, but it won't be any fiction or anything like that. It's just really a little time for me to kind of mull over what's gone and what's, what hopefully will come in the future for Starship Sova. So, if you would like to just join me around the fire once more, <laughs> until next week, I would just like to say good day from me.
3: Survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of. Sofa, a procedure Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods
1: Shuttle set for us. Airlock will be opened in 3... 2... (laughs) 1...